This is David Rayburn. Welcome back to the Critical Care Corner. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Zach Behrens. He's a pediatric intensivist here at Riley Hospital for Children. Welcome, Dr. Behrens. So we are going to be talking about electrolytes today, a hyper this, hypo that. What does it even mean? whoop de doo What does it all mean, Basil? Sounds good. But um, I think that this is something that is covered on the boards. There are some important aspects here. So turn up the volume, put your headphones in, listen to us, and we're going to get started with sodium. How about hyper hypernatremia to start? Does that sound okay? Sure. All right. Uh, so I think when you think about sodium, um, it kind of goes hand in hand with volume status. You know, when you think about hypernatremia, I think you have to ask yourself first, is it hypernatremia with where you're euvolemic or is it hypernatremia uh, where you're hypovolemic? Because kind of making that differentiation is going to help just help you, you know, determine what the etiology might be. So, so I think the, one of the first things that you're going to do whenever you have somebody who's hyponatri- or hypernatremic, sorry, uh, is to, is to do a good, you know, uh, HMP and really this, should do this with every patient, but certainly do a good HMP to try to determine is this kid fluid down or, or are they euvolemic? I think that's probably the same case when we're thinking of hyponatremia exactly, as well. Exactly. Volume status really plays the role here in determining what your etiology ultimately is. Absolutely, absolutely. What are some big ones from a hypernatremia standpoint if we are thinking that someone's volume up? Uh, if you're thinking, well, volume up is probably, uh, you know, maybe the main reason that, that I would say we would see it would be iatrogenic is if we've, we've kind of over-resuscitated somebody. Um, you know, our typical fluid that we use for resuscitation these days is, is normal saline. I think that might change in the future due to some evidence coming out about um, uh, about the types of fluid that we use. But for right now, it's normal saline. Um, so it's pretty unusual for me to see somebody come in that is, is overhydrated and uh, has a high sodium. Now, maybe I'll see it in the ICU and somebody that's been very aggressively resuscitated um, and then their sodium might be, you know, 145 plus, 150 plus, but you look back kind of through their chart and you see that they got quite a bit of normal saline. Yeah, because normal saline is not actually normal when it it comes to, especially the sodium content and the chloride content, which we'll talk about. Exactly. And there's kind of a growing mantra um, in, you know, critical care and in acute care and nephrology that normal saline is not normal. And, And I don't think we quite have the evidence as to what to do in place of it right now, but I think the, there's kind of a growing idea that normal saline might not be the best fluid for resuscitation. All right. Other things we should be thinking about if we see hypernatremia? Yeah, so hypernatremia, you know, if it's if it's euvolemic, you know, there's, there's not terribly many things that are going to cause that. Um, again, iatrogenic, uh, you've, you know, if you've adequately resuscitated somebody, but you've used, uh, you know, sodium, normal, uh, normal saline, and they could have a normal fluid status or volume status, but be hypernatremic. Uh, hyperaldosteronism, hyperaldosteronism and Cushing syndrome would be two other things that you might think of that uh, might cause you to be euvolemic and have a high sodium. As far as things that might cause you to have a low uh, or sorry, I keep saying low sodium. I mean, high we're, we're going to have to keep going back to make sure we're still on the hyper right now. <laughs> yeah. 
High sodium, uh, but low, but dehydrated. DI would be one, diabetes insipidus uh, would be would be one that I would worry about. GI losses. So, you know, you can have, if you have like a, a kid with an ostomy, for example, that's having high ostomy output, there is sodium in ostomy output, but it's, it's low relative to serum sodium. And, and so you tend to lose more free water with that. Um, you can have like skin skin losses you know burn patients are kind of classic for this where you have a large uh, body surface area of burns and you're losing a lot of free water but not necessarily with uh, hot you know sodium uh, equal sodium loss um, so you get hypernatremic and are dehydrated and then um, you know not as often in pediatric kids but if you have some sort of alcohol ingestion you know that's another one where you're going to have free water loss so if you got your teenager who kind of comes in with a sodium of 155 and looks dehydrated and is acting uh, unusually it could be you know thinking about uh, alcohol intoxication is, is probably not unreasonable good all right so i think this is probably a, a classic board question but you have hypernatremia and you want to correct it and as you're correcting maybe you get a little bit too aggressive what potentially could happen there yeah with hypernatremia i mean i think the big concern is so usually you're you're correcting a free water deficit first of all so you know you're going to go through the process of calculating free water and kind of correcting that in a careful way um, but what you really worry about is um, cerebral edema um, if you if you start with hypernatremia and you and you correct too fast you can have cerebral edema which would be kind of the, the serious thing that you would worry about if you're using normal saline as a as your kind of fluid of your resuscitation, or if you're using a normal saline base, in in kind of the fluids that you're running continuously, uh, you know, once you've got somebody adequately resuscitated with boluses, you probably reduce the risk of of dropping it down. But you know, you certainly can go through the math and the process of calculating the free water and doing it kind of the the appropriate way. But um, you know, it. it it's interesting. I think there's this evidence coming that normal saline isn't normal, but at the same time, there's also this group of people saying normal saline is safer because it, it doesn't cause iatrogenic hyponatremia and it prevents things like dropping your, dropping hypernatremia too fast. Right. All right. Anything else from a hypernatremia standpoint that you think we should cover? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think it's, um, I think the big thing is, again, you know, do uh, determine whether it's, uh, you know, they're dehydrated or not, and that's going to help guide a lot of your initial therapy and then kind of go from there. Um, and then with all of these, iatrogenic is probably the first thing that you need to cross out the list because it probably is the most common reason that we see a lot of these abnormalities. Definitely. We're, we're doing our best to do the right thing, and sometimes it doesn't always... And sometimes you just have to, I mean, you just have to kind of deal with the side effects of what you're doing because if they're in shock they need to be resuscitated um and then you can kind of deal with the electrolyte abnormalities down the road one of the many challenges of critical care i think absolutely all right so why don't we talk about hyponatremia now yeah so hyponatremia again you're gonna you're gonna assess for whether they're euvolemic or dehydrated you know, there's, I think, more causes of hyponatremia than maybe hypernatremia. 
for euvolemic, I think SIADH is is certainly a big one that we probably see. You know, the kind of the common ones are some sort of intracranial pathology, um, but you can see SIADH with pulmonary pathology. And, and really, I've kind of come to believe that really with anything that might make you sick, you might, might get some degree of SIADH. Um, iatrogenic is a big one. And, and, you know, there's new recommendations to use normal saline as your base and whatever kind of you're running your fluids as because there's good evidence that if you use something like half normal saline or even quarter normal saline particularly, um, you can actually drop your drop your sodium and cause um, you know hyponatremia. Um, you can also see it with skin loss and renal disease, but but kind of the two big ones that I think about are, are SIADH and iatrogenic causes. And that's for a euvolemic status. That's for euvolemic. If you're dehydrated, you can have cerebral salt wasting, which can occur, um, which typically occurs after some sort of brain injury, and you have this kind of high volume urine output that has a lot of salt in it. Um, so you get both a loss of water and a loss of salt. Uh, diuretics are another one which can cause uh, hyponatremia and, and, you know, dehydration. I suppose you could see kind of a euvolemic state with diuretics as well if you're kind of taking somebody who's maybe fluid overloaded, somebody with maybe a heart disease or something like that that you're trying to keep a little bit drier. But, you know, certainly I would think if you have somebody who's on chronic diuretics at home, maybe your cardiac baby or something like that, um, and they come in with a low sodium, a low chloride, and are a little bit dry, is it just the medication that they're on that's causing that? And then kind of with all these, there's there's a bunch of genetic syndromes, um, both for hyper and hypo. There's a bunch of genetic syndromes that might affect, you know, concentrating ability of the kidneys and stuff that are a little bit more obscure and, and, and certainly not something that I think, I think you kind of do your initial workup um, and and if you find that you're not finding that, then you're probably going to pull in your subspecialist to help you know, hit that roadblock. Delineate, and... yeah, where what those kind of weird genetic, uh, you know, polymorphism is that that causes you to excrete too much sodium or too little sodium. So. Definitely, I think uh, GI losses is a big one. GI losses, as well. absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, kids who come in with with gastroenteritis can kind of have have um, any of these kind of abnormalities. Um, the nice thing is they correct pretty quickly. So that's, I think, as you think about these processes, you know, once you identify what it is, you should be able to kind of correct it in a fairly predictable fashion. Um, so if you think you know what it is and you're trying to correct it in the way that makes sense for what the pathology is and it's not correcting, then that's always the time to step back and say, what am I missing? Um, so, so you know, the most common GI thing that we see is just gastroenteritis, right? Um, gastroenteritis, even with, you know, it is definitely with oral rehydration, it's fairly predictable in how, how patients respond to that. So, I think you, you talked about kind of iatrogenic and a euvolemic state, and I think that that always makes me think of how parents are mixing formula. Yeah, that's a great one. Because yeah. I feel like that's a classic board question too. And that's a very, so... You think about how these kids present, um, you know, hypernatremia, I don't often find them to be symptomatic, at least due to the high sodium. I mean, it would take a pretty high sodium to make somebody of ultramental status. And really the thing that we worry about is like with sodiums of greater than 170, and it's, it's a thrombosis risk. Hyponatremia, though, on the other hand, I see, you probably see these kids in the ED. I certainly see them in the ICU. Um, and they'll come in with seizures and they're staying oftentimes even status. And, and a common story that we get is, is, uh, you know, inappropriate mixing of formula or just giving somebody a formula that 
uh, or, or a, a liquid that they shouldn't have for age. So, you know, you've got the six-month-old who maybe has bronchiolitis, uh, and the only thing that the parents can get them to drink is Kool-Aid, so that's what the parents give them, and they drink, you know, ounces and ounces of Kool-Aid, and then they come in and their sodium is, is 113 in their season. So, yeah, so if you get low sodium on somebody who who's coming into the ED, you know, initial presentation, uh, otherwise well kid, you know, good dietary history can be informative as well. Yep, and I think you, you highlighted that, and I feel like we say that quite often, that taking a good history and doing a good physical exam will get you nine-tenths of what absolutely, you need. Absolutely, The nice thing is these days WIC is great, so a lot of people have enough formula, so you don't get quite the formula stretching that you, maybe you did t- 20 years ago, but it still happens, unfortunately. So, And we'll see it a couple times a year in the ICU. Hypernatremia is a little bit more straightforward, I think. For hyponatremia, though, ha- once you see that sodium of, you know, 120 or 115, yeah. what else do you need to do to kind of help guide what's causing this? Like osms and sodium and urine sodiums, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is a fair workup for kind of either. Um, I mean, I, we already talked a lot about HMP, and that's going to get you a lot of the way there. Um, some sort of set of electrolytes, a BMP or a CMP, a renal panel, kind of whatever, whatever your institution calls it, you know, certainly do that. Um, you know, with that, because a lot of times one electrolyte abnormality will come with other electrolyte abnormalities. So getting something like an iCal and magnesium, kind of doing the full panel can make sense, particularly if it's kind of a profound abnormality. You know, serum osms you can calculate typically based off of that. So that's um, something that you can do. You're going to get a BUN and creatinine oftentimes with that. So you'll get an idea of kind of hydration status and where it'll be additive to your physical exam, I should say. You know, your creatinine can maybe, if it's a you know, a really dehydrated could give you an idea of how long or potentially or how extremely dehydrated they are. Um, but other things that you might do um, if you feel like your history and physical and exam don't give you an answer that makes a lot of sense, and you don't need to do this on everybody, would be um, urine electrolytes and urine um, osms. You know, your the, the kidneys are pretty smart. If you're down in sodium, they should be trying to retain sodium. Um, so you can actually get a urine sodium, and it, it, typically if it's greater than 30, you know, that's, uh, you're secreting, you're, you're, you're allowing sodium to be excreted in the urine. If it's less than that, then it's, the body's probably trying to retain. So, you know, if you have a low serum sodium and then you have a low urine sodium, at least, you know, the kidneys aren't the problem, you know, the kidneys are doing the right thing. Um, so, um, and these can also help, you know, kind of the three, as far as boards, I would say kind of the things that with regards to sodium that might be kind of hot topics, um, you know, being able to differentiate between SIADH um, and DI is, is are pretty big because both of those can occur with head injuries uh, or, or intracranial pathology. So it's kind of knowing that, you know, SIADH is euvolemic. You tend to have very concentrated urine, um, very high urine sodium. And you have low serum osms, low um, serum sodium. Uh, can help you differentiate between DI or, or cerebral salt wasting, where you're going to have different volumes of urine um, being made. You're going to have different serum and urine osm differences. You're going to have different serum and, and urine sodiums as well. Um, so that's, that's, those are kind of, they're very testable things because they're, you know, they're kind of facts. Um, and you can, and they're, and they're, you know, they can give you a couple pieces of information and make you figure out what that, that final piece of information is. Exactly. Um, and I think that's probably, 
probably how it would go is you're going to yeah. get the sodium, yeah. you're going to get uranosms, yeah. serumosms, yeah. and maybe you're in yeah. a urine sodium, exactly. and you're going to have to try yeah. and figure yeah. out where the problem is. And with all three of those things, they can give you head injury as the as the etiology, right? So, right. So they can they can get a lot of question out of out of one type of pathology, which question writers really like that type of stuff. Yep. Exactly. All right. I think kind of moving on a little bit from that is we see sometimes, I think this is also, again, a classic board question, but like a pseudo-hyponatremia from something like DKA, for yes. instance. Yeah. So your sugar's, you know, 600. Right. And your sodium is 125. Right. But is your sodium actually 125? No, it's more than that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, DKA is a, a, you know, there's a lot of great pathology in DKA. There can be a lot of great learning in DKA from many different things. But, you know, electrolytes certainly. And we'll, we'll talk about it with sodium now, but we can talk about it with potassium when we get there because that's another one um, that'll be affected. We can talk about it with chloride as well because <laughs> how we treat these kids oftentimes very much affects the chloride. Um, but, yeah, you have to correct for, you know, uh, how you have to correct for the sodium for hot based on how high the glucose is so it's important to do that um and and you know uh you know dk is a very hyperosmolar state so thinking about what the actual the true sodium is is really important because as you resuscitate these kids you know we, we kind of know that all, most people with dk have some degree of cerebroedema right if you were to scan everybody you're probably going to find at least some level of edema but how you know we can really affect how uh, you know, whether that edema becomes um, them being, you know, a little bit altered or sleepier than normal to being really, like, very clinically significant and having kind of long-term uh, implications, even including mortality, about how we resuscitate them. So correcting for that sodium and, and really understanding what their kind of serumosms are at the time that you start treatment is really important. Good. All right. I think one last thing from a hyponatremia standpoint that uh, that I saw when we were looking through the content outline was talking about water intoxication yeah. in patients. I think we highlighted it a little bit, sure. but just a little bit more information on that maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think you don't you need to think about it beyond just kind of the the neonator or infant that's that's getting inappropriate mixed formula or inappropriate, you know, um, Kool-Aid or whatever it is, right, um, that the parent's giving them. You know, toddlers can have this as well. You know, we'll see it occasionally. Um, it, it's hard to prove. It's, you typically have to have an, endo, an endocrinologist come in, and, you know, they're going to do, like, their water deprivation and whatnot tests, and it takes a while, so it's a bit of a, 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 a cumbersome process. But certainly, you know, when you're taking a dietary history on these patients that have abnormal, um, try to ask the questions in a way that are, you know, so... You know, are they carrying around a bottle all the time? And the bottle, you know, they they minute they empty the bottle, they're they're going and filling it back up with water or a cup or whatever it is, depending on how old they are. But asking those types of questions and really, parents don't know often. You know, they just think their kid's normal and that like they're just thirsty and walking around. But then, if you can actually get them to quantify the gallons and gallons or liters and liters of, of just free water that they're taking in in a day can be really surprising to everybody involved. Um, but that absolutely can cause hyponatremia. 
Yeah, and I was thinking like you know an adolescent wrestler. Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Just drinking water yes. and not yeah. taking in any electrolytes yes. whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. just free water, free water, yeah. free water. And I mean adolescents. I mean you, you need you need to unfortunately you know that you have to worry about lots of things with them that are you don't have to worry about with younger kids. But uh, I mean the wrestler who's trying to maintain weight and is maybe abusing diuretics or something like that, and right. or, or um, you know laxatives or something like that that might be increasing GI output. Um, you know, yeah, eating disorders, things like that. That's like kind of a whole nother eating disorders, especially, are kind of a whole nother realm uh, where you might see electrolyte abnormalities, which you really probably need some sort of specialist involved to help think about how you're going to correct those kids because they're a little bit different because they've got both, you know, protein. They've got all these things that are kind of going on that you can't just think about kind of one the electrolyte and just correct that. Right. Um, so. All right. Very good. Well, I think that we've talked enough about sodium at this point. Great. <laughs> Let's move on to potassium. I yeah. think this one tends to be a little bit trickier because you have pr- real problems with high and low. Um, yeah. And, like, potentially real bad problems. Sure. Why don't we go ahead and start with too much potassium? Yeah, too much, I think, is probably, the, the for me, is the more worrisome. I think it's it's often tested, so I think it's there's more etiologies, it seems like, for, for high. Um, so, so a lot of people think about that first. You know, I think there's, uh, as you think about it, there's kind of lots of different reasons that you can have high potassium. Again, kind of getting a good HMP, and I'm just going to keep saying that over and over again because it's really important. Is, is is essential. Potassium as opposed to sodium, you don't oftentimes think about volume status with, although there can be certainly etiologies that come with dehydration with potassium, but I don't tend to think about volume status as being quite as important. But, you know, when you think about potassium, typically like a level of over five-ish is kind of where you're starting to think that you might be hyper uh, hyperkalemic. So if kind of five to six is kind of mild. And the nice thing with potassium is there's kind of this the pretty classic pattern of EKG changes um, that you can see uh, as your potassium goes up. So spurious you know, is 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 one thing that you always need to think about. So you get a high potassium, and, you know, there's a lot of hemolysis that occurs oftentimes with blood draws. You've got, you know, people with tourniquets on and really squeezing on fingers and stuff to get little drips of blood into maybe a, an eye stack cartridge or something like that that they're going to run. So it can be spurious. So you know, when you see a high one, the first thing that you should do is, is think, does this make any sense? Because if it doesn't make sense and you repeat it, there's a reasonably good chance it should be or will be normal. So I'm, I'm typically pro-repeating these labs when they're high. Something that you can be doing kind of while you're doing that is to get a 12-lead EKG. Because if you get a 12-lead EKG and you don't have any EKG changes, you feel more comfortable as well. But with the repeat. With the repeat, especially right. being normal or even high normal or, or close. So, um, but, you know, you, when you start to get into that five, six plus range, you know, you start to see EKG changes. The Kind of the first change that you typically see will be uh, tall T waves. And they're pretty impressive. I mean, it's it's typically if it's truly due to hyperkalemia. Those nice peaked, pointed yes, T e- waves. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you can kind of see those and... and you know, if you have that happen, or you have a high K and you see those, you know, you absolutely need to start thinking about kind of what are the next steps in treatment. Kind of the next thing that you'll start to see is you'll start to see a loss of P waves. Um, so certainly if you're starting to see that, then then you really probably need to have, start to have some urgency. And then obviously if it gets really high, it can really, you know, 
lead to arrhythmias and whatnot that are that can be fatal. So that's kind of where we want to avoid getting to, obviously. Uh, Definitely want yeah. to avoid. <laughs> so, but in terms of things that can cause this, um, you know, there's there's drugs that you know some of our chronic kids are on that might cause uh, if they're on potassium sparing diuretics or something like that that can cause hyperkalemia. Cell death is actually a big one. So if you have somebody with like evolve you know if you have somebody that has a reason to have cell death an oncology patient um that you're going to start treating is going to have tumor lysis syndrome that's kind of a very classic one you know the uh toddler that has volvulus and has you know bowel ischemia and they untwist the bowel a lot of times you'll see you know hyperkalemia with that that often happens in the OR, so not necessarily in a setting that you're going to see it. But those types of things where you're going to have large amounts of cell death um, can kind of cause an acute acute rise in your potassium. Any cause of rhabdo? Is yeah, gonna... rhabdo is a, is another big one. Yeah, I just had a kid with rhabdo up at. Uh, at up at IU North a couple of weeks ago, that um, that was something that we were watching very carefully. Renal failure is kind of kind of the big classic one, either acute renal failure where they've taken some acute insult to their kidneys, um, and they're going to have you know decreased ability to secrete or to to get rid of potassium in their urine. They might just have complete you know oliguria or, or uh, complete cessation of urine output. And, and, you know, that can obviously cause your potassium to rise. Also, your kind of your chronic kidney disease kids. So we've got, we've got these, you know, a fairly large population of patients that have chronic kidney uh, disease and, and um, maybe dialysis-dependent, PD-dependent, who, who are at high risk for this as well. Um, and then adrenal insufficiency is kind of the other thing. These kids tend to come in pretty sick because um, uh, a lot of times, unless you know that they have adrenal insufficiency, their first presentation is oftentimes an extremis, um, but a lot of times they'll have uh, elevated potassium as well. So that's, that's kind of it for hyper reasons for hyperkalemia. Um, hypokalemia, GI loss is, is probably another place that you can have hypokalemia. Um, diuretics is a big one that I that I see, and and if you have somebody on chronic diuretics, um, you know your your uh, NICU graduates who are going home on some Lasix or something like that, your cardiac babies especially. I don't tend to think of hypokalemia as being I you know I I have a probably a, as an ICU doctor have maybe a little bit lower threshold in a non cardiac patient for for tre- or a higher threshold for treating. Um, you have to be pretty low, like sub two point five, sub three for sub two point five for me to be bothered, sub three for me to even considering treatment. Um, unless it's a kid that has a underlying cardiac disease, uh, known you know proarrhythmic um, genetic mutation or something like that. Um, in which case, then yeah, we're gonna keep them more normal. And you can have some EKG findings with hypokalemia as well, correct? You can. I can't remember. The U wave. Yeah, yeah, U wave. That's yeah. right. Thank you. So. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It tends to be you have to be pretty profound. Right. I think like sub two. Yeah. To so really I've get like there. I've never seen them, um, which is probably why I didn't think of them off the top of my head. But yeah, and so. Potassium is another one, you know, it's easy to add to, if you've got somebody who's urinating and you're not worried about kidney injury and then shutting off urine production, it's pretty easy to give, to add, you know, add to fluids and, and, right. and have it be not as much of an issue. A low, low potassium release, that might be not as much of an issue. The flip side to that is if you've got somebody who's at risk for AKI and you have them on fluids with potassium and then you can actually, you know, you can cause hyperkalemia, so... All right. And I think at least from an emergency standpoint yeah. with uh, hyperkalemia, we have a lot of temporizing therapies. The only real way to 
fix it is dialysis, pretty much. Well, the, the, so that's the that's a quick way to, to or if you have somebody that has ready access to do dialysis, yes, you can fix it more quickly that way. I mean, but I mean, so I think there's kind of things that you do with treatment, and and again, I think this is this can be a fairly testable uh, subject because it's it's a pretty set process that you should do. Is you want to kind of eliminate or at least mitigate the the effects of having high potassium. You're typically going to give calcium, um, calcium gluconate to try to stabilize the myocardium. Um, you'll often give bicarb, and that's just because if you, you know, if you're acidotic and you've got all those hydrogen ions going into the cell, the thing that happens is all the potassium ions go out of the cell. So we talked about DKA a little bit uh, earlier, but that this is kind of a classic finding that you see in DKA. DKA, these kids are peeing a ton because they, you know, they're spilling glucose into their urine and they're just they're drawing dragging so, everything yeah, with it. Yeah, exactly. So they're actually losing a lot of potassium in their urine. But their potassiums often look normal in their initial labs, and that's because despite all this kind of total body loss of potassium, their acidotic, so all these hydrogen ions going into the cells, potassium sent out into the serum, and it looks like they're normal potassium, but they're really total body down. So you might want to, you know, you want to make sure these kids aren't acidotic, uh, or you, you know, in order to correct the high serum uh, potassium, you can try to drive potassium into the cells by giving them sodium bicarbs. So that's kind of two quick things that you can do to um, maybe in a very short period of time mitigate some of the bad effects. Glucose and insulin is another thing that you can do. You know, insulin will drive potassium into the cells. Um, and then beta um, adrenergic drugs, so like albut- continuous albuterol can work. Those aren't the, the you know, they aren't like immediate, right? I mean, they can work pretty quickly, especially the insulin, but uh, it's not it's not something that's going to work in like five minutes, if, if only because it takes a while to get those medications drawn and set up and whatnot. Um, Which is why you give the calcium first, basically, exactly. to protect the... Exactly. The, exactly. To stabilize the yeah. cardiac yeah. membrane, so then your other treatments yes. have a chance yes. to, yeah. again, kind of temporize yes. the situation. And then kind of the other things that you're going to, you know, you want to eliminate. So one, one way that we know that you can eliminate is through the urine, right? So um, you're going to give medications that might promote uh, elimination through the urine. Which would be Lasix would be probably the most common thing that you could do. Um, now, the caveat with that is they have to be able to pee. Um, so if you've got somebody who's in bad kidney failure and, and not going to make urine for you, that unfortunately may not work. Um, Caxlate is the other thing that you can do, but that's pretty slow acting. Typically we'll do it, but it's more just because we're doing it because it's a thing that you can do <laughs> this, as opposed for the to sake of doing it. hoping that it's going to work pretty quickly. And certainly if you have somebody with a chronic reason for hyperkalemia, then, you know, that can be useful to get that started. And then obviously dialysis is kind of the, um, kind of the extreme thing that we, all, we sometimes have to do. It's pretty rare that somebody comes into the hospital with hyperkalemia where we, we get to the point of uh, um, where we're doing dialysis on them, at least in kids. Right. Yeah. So... Very good. Should we move on to chloride? Sure. All right. So I think that really we just kind of have things that cause either hypo or hyperchloremia, but I don't think there's really much that we necessarily do for it. There, there's not. I mean, I think hyperchloremia is, is these days is almost always iatrogenic. You know, the, the, the times that I see that are in the septic patient that's been very aggressively fluid resuscitated. Um, the DKA patient who's been fluid resuscitated and then has been on, you know, a high volume uh, fluid rate uh, that's usually a normal saline base. 
for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. I think the thing to remember with uh, hyperchloremia is that it can cause uh, hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. So if you're, you know, if you've got a kid that's acidotic for other reasons or came in with acidosis for other reasons, sepsis, decay, and you seem to have resuscitated them and fixed the underlying problem, but their pH is still 729 and you can't figure out why, take a look at the chloride because I bet it's 115, 118, something like that. So, so don't forget about that. And if you've got a kid who's you know, acidotic for lots of different reasons, and you've got this high chloride because you resuscitated them. Sometimes those effects can be additive, and they can be even more acidotic. So just just be thoughtful with that. And we talked about normal saline not being normal, yes, and that I yeah. think I think that there will be a continual shift towards other yeah. fluids. I mean, I think we're getting to the point where I would not be surprised to start seeing some larger randomized control trials looking at different types, you know, whether it's LR versus normal saline, or if somebody builds an entirely new kind of more physiologic fluid to use, um, I, these things would not surprise me. I think the, the old crystalloid versus colloid debate, I think, may take a backseat to which form of crystalloid. Crystalloid versus different crystalloid. <laughs> do, we, do we use, yeah. Okay. So hypochloremia, kind of the other, you know, again, I don't see it that often where it's not something that I caused. And the primary reason that I cause it is diuretics. So, uh, you know, if you're on diuretics, um, you can have that. You can have it with GI losses is the other kind of the other place um, that you can have it. Yeah, I think we, um, we think of like pyloric stenosis, yes, for exactly. instance. Yeah, uh, you always get that tested, that yeah. hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis. Yes, yes. Yeah, so both of those things, I think, are... And again, there's not much... I, uh, You know, the primary reason that I correct it is because my diuretics stop working as well once it gets down to, like, a chloride of less than 90. Um, so we'll often supplement sodium and chloride if we've got somebody who are really on... have on a pretty aggressive diuretic schedule. But um, with all these things, unless they're, like, ex, you know, whether it's sodium, potassium chloride we're gonna talk about calcium in a second you know unless there's something that unless they're in a uh, you know extremely abnormal and causing physiologic problems um, or there's some underlying pathology that's causing them to be abnormal that needs to be addressed a lot of times the best thing to do is to just try to get these kids onto some sort of regular diet or even if they can't eat some sort of enteral diet at least and the, the body's a lot smarter than we are so it tends to correct itself but you got to kind of do that in in while thinking about the things that you're doing that might be screwing things up so right very good well let's round it out with calcium as you just alluded to yeah. so uh, maybe start with too little calcium hypo sure uh, hypocalcemia, um, you know, it's not something that I, and I would say this with all kind of calcium, is it's not something that, that I see a lot of. <laughs> um, I think with most of these, if there's true kind of cal- pathology affecting kind of calcium homeostasis in the body, you're almost always getting an endocrinologist involved. Um, sometimes a nephrologist, but oftentimes an endocrinologist and plus a nephrologist maybe. <laughs> but, you know, hypocalcemia, you can certainly have, you know, inadequate uh, intake 
you know, there, there are some medications that chelate, so you might have adequate intake, but you're going to have inadequate um, uptake from the GI tract if you've got a, uh, if you're on something that, that, that chelates. Um, and in parathyroid diseases, kind of the hyperparathyroidism is kind of the, um, the one that everybody worries about. And I think hypocalcemia is another one of these that we talked about with hyponatremia, yeah. that kids can come in seizing. Yes, absolutely. So, absolutely. And I think there's some... You know, this is one where they, they might test you because there's some kind of like classic signs of hypocalcemia. Seizures certainly being one of them. You get the facial mus- muscle spasm, which is one, and then the... Uh, the carpopedal spasm. Carpopedal spasm, yeah, yep. is the other one, which are... Uh, We're going to butcher both names if yeah, we try. <laughs> it's like Shavostek and Trousseau signs, right. I think. But those are kind of kind of classic findings um and they're probably kind of you know these kids get kind of like crampy paresthesias they don't they just don't feel well i've actually seen some (laughs) seen somebody with it while i was in africa that was that was with me that kind of got dehydrated and whatnot for for a variety of reasons um and had hypocalcemia and she like couldn't stop her thumbs from twitching which was kind of weird you know i think if you have kind of muscular findings that seem unweird you know thinking about calcium and magnesium for that matter because they kind of go in FOSS because they kind of all go hand in hand. Um, but certainly thinking about pathology related to those is, or at least checking those makes sense. And I think the testable items there are, are what you talked about for the signs that you're going to find mm-hmm. and, and they may talk about that or they may ask what you can do to, from a physical exam standpoint yep. to test for yes, that. So. exactly. Perfect. All right. And then I think the more tested of the two is probably hypercalcemia. Um, because yep. of the, what, moans, stones, groans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think you get it as a, um, you know, you can have it with malignancies, which as, as kind of a, a secondary finding of malignancy is. Um, you can have it with immobility, which is kind of a, a hot topic in pediatrics right now in terms of uh, getting getting patients that are in the hospital to be more mobile. So if you've got these chronic kids that are laying around for a long, long period of time, um, they can certainly have hypercalcemia. And, 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 you know, so the, the test stem may give you, you know, the, the moans and the stones and things like that. And But part of it will probably be the kid was bedbound for, you know, was, was in a car accident and was in traction for a really, really, really long period of time or something like that. Thiazide diuretics is the diuretics are kind of you know they're they're very testable things because they work in a very specific place you know they involve these transporters which they love right you've got drugs that function you know you get pharmacology because you've got drugs that operate in specific areas in the nephron and then they cause these electrolyte abnormalities which lead to physical exam findings so they can be kind of kind of hot topics as well but thiazides are certainly known for calcium retention those are kind of the big ones. These kids come in with kind of like altered mental status. Um, you can have some QT, short QT changes. So the cast, if you have hypo, you can have kind of a prolonged QT, but in uh, hyper, you can have a short QT. So you can certainly get an EKG. Nobody's going to fault you for getting an EKG on, on electrolyte abnormalities, I don't think, because can, they can be pretty pathognomic. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> it can be pretty... Uh, pathognomic. Pathognomic. There you go. Classic. Right. Yep. <laughs> Other things that we should be thinking about with calcium, or is that about it? I think that's it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, in neonates, maybe one thing to know is their their sarcoplasmic reticulum is is not as developed. So we tend to think about ionized calcium as being pretty important for 
um, cardiac contractility in neonates. I don't know if that's really a, a thing that would show up on general peds boards, but certainly if you go to like the CBICU, we're pretty aggressive about maintaining adequate ionized calciums, um, particularly in our younger our younger kids, um, like less than one year old, because that can be pretty important. And then I think the other thing is, you know, if you're trying to correct calcium and you're, you know, you're not able to think about mag, and because um, if your mag's not normal, then you're probably not going to get your calcium normal. And I was going to say, I think that's a great board question too. It is. is they'll exactly. ask, they yeah. say yeah. you're replacing and yeah. it's not and coming it's not up. Right. What yeah. other yeah. electrolyte yeah. you yeah. should you yeah. consider? And magnesium is the one. Yeah. And as far as kind of workup for these, you know, calcium diseases, you know, it's pretty similar to all the other electrolyte things. You're going to do your great H&P, right? You're going to get your, you know, your overall panel of electrolytes, which is going to include an ICO, and it's going to include a magnesium. Um, you're going to want to see an albumin in this case because uh, calcium is bound to albumin. And if you have an albumin, you know, you, it's similar to correcting for sodium for uh, with glucose levels. You're going to correct for calcium for albumin level as well. But other things that you may want to check on are parathyroid hormone. You know, if you feel like this isn't spurious, it's not due to diuretics that I'm giving. Um, this seems to be, you know, this patient really has a problem with calcium homeostasis. Um, you know, parathyroid hormone would be something to check. And then vitamin D pathology would be kind of the other thing that you might want to check, whether it's uh, due to uh, deficiency or, or uptake or something along those lines. Um, so you can check, and I always have to ask, you know, the endocrinologist, because if you type in like 25 dihydrate, you know, you get like 15 different choices. So, you know, I think with, with, when you get into this kind of like more complex or, or rare processes, you know, talking with your subspecialist and making sure when you stick the kid for blood that you kind of get everything that you want, um, is, is always a wise strategy, but I'm thinking about vitamin D pathology and then, you know, you can get a urine calcium as well and see, um, kind of what the urine uh, excretion of calcium is. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that was a pretty good overview of electrolytes. Uh, it's definitely a hard topic, I think, to keep everything wrapped around in your brain, but, uh, we do appreciate you sitting down with us, Dr. Oh, Barron. Absolutely, absolutely, anytime. All right. Thanks, guys.